Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. When it comes to Broadway musicals, Columbia alumni have contributed a startling amount to the canon of musical theater. Rodgers and Hammerstein set the composition standard during the golden age of Broadway in the 40s and 50s with shows like South Pacific. John Kander's music probed the darker recesses of humanity, giving legendary choreographer Bob Fosse innovation-inspiring scores for shows like Cabaret and Chicago. Come on, babe, why don't we paint the town? And all that jazz, I'm going And most recently, Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkie were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for their musical Next to Normal in 2008. And Janine Tesori made history in 2015 with her musical Fun Home as part of the first all-female writing team to win the Tony Award. Your keys, oh, your ring, But today, we're turning our attention to Columbia alumni who work in a different capacity on Broadway. Today, we're talking about directors. Thanks to recent events hosted by Columbia College Women and CAA Arts Access, we were able to record panel discussions with two alumni from the School of the Arts currently working on Broadway, Diane Paulus and Tyne Raffaelli. We're first going to hear from Diane Paulus. If you haven't heard of her, it's high time you did. She's the artistic director of ART at Harvard, and in 2014, Time Magazine selected her for its annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. In 2013, she received the Tony Award for Best Direction of the musical Pippin. Her other Broadway credits include the 2009 revival of Hair and the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. And this year, she has not one, but two musicals on Broadway. Finding Neverland, and the Sarah Bareilles musical Waitress, which you'll hear her speak about in more detail later on. Given Paulus's experience in the industry and her growing impact on the theater landscape, the panel had a number of questions for her. But top of the list was what her inclusion in that Time 100 list says about the state of theater in the world and the role of women in it. That, that was funny. I got it. You know, you get an email. I got this email from Time magazine. And I, and I sent it to my agent. I was like, do you think this is correct? <laughs> I was like, in the world? Like, really? In the world? And actually, you know what I thought primarily more than anything? I was like, thank God the theater made the list. I mean, I really felt that way because, you know, we talk about when you're an artist, you spend so much time justifying why the theater matters, why the arts matters, i.e., why should people give money for the arts? Because I'll tell you, when you're a leader in the theater, you spend a lot of time raising money, right? I run a not-for-profit theater. I spend half my time raising money for the theater. And what it makes you do is it makes you go out there and really talk to people about why the arts are important and how vital they are and how necessary they are to our lives as human beings, how they make us understand who we are as a society in a world, I'm just gonna go on for a second about this, you know, in a world where we have facts and figures constantly thrown, us at, thrown at us within seconds, you can click a button and get every fact and figure, where is the room for the development of an idea? Where is the room for empathy? Where is the room to develop an identification with a point of view that might not be your own? This is what the theater can do. This is what the arts can do, right? They make you understand. They make you get outside yourself. The transformation that a theater event can have for me is I come into the theater one in one place and I leave transformed. 
and I do it in the company of people. I don't do it alone with my laptop. I do it alive, present, with my heart beating, with my eyes open and my blood racing. You know, that I, this is why I'm addicted to the theater, because this is what I live for. So truly, my first reaction was like, I can't believe the theater made the list. You know, because of course, you know, Beyonce is gonna make the list, all the pop artists are gonna make it, but will that little theater, the theater thing, make it? Um, it's a very tricky question about women in the theater, and um, if you don't know this, uh, the Waitress production you're gonna see tonight is the first time in Broadway history that there are women in the top leadership roles on a Broadway musical. So um, this means director, choreographer, composer, lyricist, and book writer. So actually, technically, Liz Suedos did all of these in the 70s, but it was all her. Right? She was literally the writer, the director, the choreographer, everything. Um, after that, this is the first time there's been a team of women in leadership. So I have been asked umpteen times in the last couple months about this fact. And um, the way I think about it is, first of all, every woman that is in their position on this production is there because they are at the top of their game in the field that they're working in, right? They're not there because I said, we're gonna cast women and this is gonna be a casting agenda. No, it was like, who's the best person for this job? Guess what? Women are at the top of their field in all these professions. It is 2016, it is the 21st century. Theater is supposed to reflect the world we live in and so I'm very proud that we're reflecting that talent in this production. Uh, I'm happy we're marking it and I think it's important to mark it, mostly so that we can send a signal out to the next generation of young woman artists who might be here in this room, who might be across the country somewhere saying, I wanna do that, and guess what, I can do that. And I know I benefited from that as a young artist. There were women one generation ahead of me. I've been on panels with them. And they said on these panels, they were told as a director, you can't be a director. Emily Mann, who runs the McCarter Theater, she said this. She said, when I was a young artist, I was told you'll be the assistant. Women are not directors. So she's one generation ahead of me. I had the benefit of looking at Emily Mann looking at Daryl Roth, looking at Anne Bogart, looking at Zelda Fitchan, I had all these female icons that led theaters and productions and shows, Julie Tamer, all these women. And I know how important that is to see that so that you can visualize it and say, that door is open, right? Because some of that, you know, the, the feeling like the door is shut can inhibit you. But to know that that's a path that is available for you is so important. So that's, that's the most important thing. It is, um, a fact that we are behind, you know, we're behind. This season of all the musicals on Broadway, I am the only woman directing a musical, and this was the case last year as well. So this is not a happy statistic, and we have work to do. Um, we are not far behind the national statistics for women in leadership roles. We know now that more women are graduating college than men. We know more women are graduating law school for men, but women are not achieving the leadership roles that they should be. So this is work we have to do across the board, it's not just in the theater. What I'm very happy about this Broadway season is that it's a very diverse season on Broadway and when we've heard so much in Hollywood about where is the diversity, this is a really diverse season on Broadway so I'm very proud of the theater community for that. Theater can be a tough industry to break into and having a mentor can have a huge impact on one's career trajectory. Paula spoke a little bit about her road to the theater, as well as her mentors along the way, including one from Columbia. So I, I grew up in New York City, 
And um, I actually, uh, I wanted to go into politics. So to make this very quick, um, I grew up in the 70s in New York and it was a, a, a tough time in New York City. And I, I was like a little activist. I would like go on my bike and clean up the neighborhood and I'd take the train you know, out of town and look at the South Bronx and be like, why does it have to be that way? I was a, like an idealist at like 10 years old. And then um, I went to Harvard and I, I thought I was gonna go into politics. And I, um, I interned for Ruth Messenger who was the councilwoman for the Upper West Side. And her chief of staff was Gail Brewer who is the current Manhattan Borough President who I just met the other night. And I said, you don't remember me but I worked for you like 20 years ago. Um, and uh, I had an incredible summer with them. But it was that moment, um, actually, really quick, she sent me to the Coalition for the Homeless meeting. She said, Ruth Messenger needs you to be there to represent her. So just go there. I was, you know, 19. So I go to this meeting and, you know, they all look at me and I say, oh, I'm here representing Ruth Messenger. She really supports her work. You know, she wanted me to tell you that. And they were like, great, wonderful. Back to the meeting. And they all went on talking about the van routes to get the food to the homeless. They had a blackboard. They were making, you know, deputy captains of how to get the food. And I had this light bulb moment. And I was like, you know what? I want to be in the trenches. I want to be in that van. I want to be handy, you know, scooping the food and giving it to the people. I want to be somehow more in the muck. That's not to say that politics is not mucky. God knows you're shaking a lot of hands and you know, change does not happen without legislation, but there was something about the contact, the kind of making of the production of it that felt like I, I identified with. And it was a little light bulb moment and I really identified in college, that's what I love. You know, and I was a very good student and I you know, did well and I pulled all those all-nighters. Like I applied myself, but then I had this moment. I was like, I could stay up all night doing theater and I wouldn't care. You know, you do it to like write the paper and you're killing yourself and then you do it. But I thought, there's nothing more than I wanna do. It's intellectually stimulating, it's emotionally fulfilling, it's physically stimulating. And no matter how hard I work, I wanna be doing it. So that was like a big light bulb moment and I pretty much after my freshman year at Harvard started focusing on theater. Um, and I, I found every way to do it. There was no major at Harvard in theater at that time. There is now. This year we got a major in theater, dance, and media. Um, but, I, but I found every way I could do the theater and um, it, it was really this, this impulse to make change when I think back on my life. It was this feeling of life can be better, the world can be a better place. That like idealist in me, I translated into the theater. And I felt I could do it through the theater because the theater is the art of getting beyond yourself. That's why I do it. I come in a room, I bring actors, designers, writers, and together as a group, we're going to make something that none of us thought was possible. So that's pretty addictive, this feeling of I'm gonna lose my ego, you're gonna lose your ego, and we're gonna get to something sublime that we didn't think was possible. And we get to do it again and again and again, because in the theater you always begin again and you always start over. Now that's not to say it isn't filled with challenges, but I'll tell you, if you love something, you will meet the challenges. Because I tell every young artist, it's hard. Part of what I say being a director is an endurance test. When people ask me like, what does it take to be a director? It actually takes keeping standing. You know, when the ship is rocking and it's a terrible storm and everybody's jumping overboard and there's a mutiny. And I don't say that lightly for everyone in all your fields. Like a mutiny, you know those moments of panic, like I've lost it and everybody's lost faith and nobody wants to climb the mountain anymore. Your job as a leader is to stay standing and keep the ship sailing and keep everybody looking 
at the top of the mountain. You don't know how to get there. But you have to instill the inspiration and the courage, and that's going to come organically if you believe in it. My, 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 um, my mentor story, because I do want to invoke her, Anne Bogart on the faculty of the Columbia School of the Arts. When I graduated Columbia, um, I had all these options. You know, you can do that fellowship, you can do that program, all the things you should do. And I went to Anne, and I said, oh, I could do that program, and I could do that program. Or, you know, I have this crazy idea to make this show based on this like disco version of Midsummer Night's Dream and I want to do it like, you know, I want to do this thing and I could do it with my classmates and my now husband Randy and I said, you know, what do I do? And she did one thing to me. She looked at me and she did this. She said, follow your heart. And she said, if you follow your heart, all the riches will lie there. And I will never forget that, that she said that to me. And so here's my Columbia anecdote. I graduated Columbia Theater Division in the Dodge Hall, you know Dodge. So, okay, so there was no space on Dodge Hall, so we snuck to the film floor with a few of my classmates from the Columbia acting program, Rachel Murdy, Anna Wilson, and we rehearsed the beginning of the donkey show in a film school room, like under the radar. Then when we got kicked out of there, I kid you not, I made the donkey show in the lobby of Dodge Hall. After hours at like 10 o'clock at night, because our IDs, you can swipe, right? You still get into security. So we were swiping our IDs. I don't know what's in that lobby now, but there was no cafe then. It was like a mausoleum. It was just this marble room. And like someone brought a boombox and everybody else brought the costumes in a shopping bag. And we rehearsed that show in the lobby of Dodge Hall completely against the rules with no permission. And, you know, when I went to Columbia grad school on my first audition day, Anne had this exercise. She made everybody who was auditioning for the school say, in five years, I will be. And she always talks about this, the violence of articulation. If you just say it, you're one step towards getting there. And I remember saying, in five years, I will be running a theater company and we will be touring internationally. And sure enough, five years later, we had opened the donkey show. We had done it in holes in the wall for one year for free. I mean, at midnight down on the Lower East Side, nobody getting paid, midnight, Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, we did it at the Pyramid Club Avenue A, Thursday nights. Nine months into that run, Jordan Roth, the now producer of Jujamson, came and saw it and he said, I want to give this a life. And he took us to the Flamingo Nightclub, which was a nightclub in Chelsea. We ran it for a year. Everybody who never got paid and who like carried their costume home in a shopping bag <laughs> went on a contract. They got a year's salary. And a year later, we were sitting on the cheap Air India, going to the Edinburgh Festival. And I remember turning to my classmates from Columbia and saying, look, here we are. This was the dream. And we are flying to, to London and Edinburgh. And we opened the show in Europe. So. As Paulus's resume suggests, she maintains a healthy balance between directing new work and revivals. This year, she directed two new musicals that both happened to be based on movies. That would be Finding Neverland and Waitress. As this discussion took place before a performance of Waitress, she spoke about the process of bringing this particular project to the stage. So Waitress is a movie that was um, written, directed, and uh, starred Adrienne Shelley. She was a pioneer filmmaker, actor, writer. Um, the film came out in 2007. Sadly, uh, she was murdered before the film came out. It was a very tragic end to her life before the movie opened at Sundance. The movie went on to an incredible success. Um, and years later, uh, I never saw it in 2007. I don't know how many people are familiar with the film, but a lot of people know it and love it and seen it multiple times. Um, a producer brought it to me and I watched it. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, this could be a musical. 
and I had a lot of movies on my desk that people were sending me, and you know, a lot of movies become shows and musicals, and they're not all, they're not all, you know, they shouldn't maybe all become musicals. I mean, I always say like, please, if a movie is the ultimate in its form, do not turn it into a musical. Like, God forbid there's Godfather the musical. It's just like, that to me is like film perfection. Um, but this movie had like the DNA of a musical. It had, it was whimsical, it was quirky. And it's a very, um, it's a tone where it's almost like a fairy tale. It's very quirky, it's funny, but then it has this really deep underbelly to it. And that's what fascinated me. How are we gonna capture that? Like whimsical, quirky lightness, funniness with this really like socket to the gut stuff that's going on in this show. And that key lay in Sarah Bareilles. And I thought, we have to find a composer who's sort of like off the beaten path, maybe not typical music theater, someone who can capture that. And um, lucky for us, she was looking for a theater project. I met her for lunch, this is how it happens. You call her up, you know, you make your dream list. I had like all these names. You dream, and then you take a step toward your dream. And she said, yes, I'll meet you for lunch. And we talked, and she hadn't seen the movie. And I said, you know, go home, watch the DVD and write the first song that comes to you. Like, don't, don't worry about the structure of the script, just write from your heart. And the first song she wrote that popped in my inbox as an MP3 is the song, She Used To Be Mine, which is to this day the signature song of the show. She used to be so as soon as that happened, I knew she, she has it, she's, she's got it. And then we worked with Jesse Nelson, who's a very well-known film writer. She did um, I Am Sam and Corinna, Corinna. And she adapted the book. And um, I think you'll see a musical that, again, um, is a woman's story, but I think it's reaching across gender. It's really a show about what it means to be a human and how messy life is and how challenging it is and how you have to, you know, not always, you don't always find love in the place that you think you're gonna find it. And somehow through friendship and through odd circumstance of life, you know, the journey is to find that voice inside you and to support that and empower that. So I don't want to say more. I don't want to spoil it. Um, but that's been our focus. Directing a new musical can be a very different experience from directing a revival. Where a new musical requires you to work, in some sense, from a blank slate, revivals come with a heavy baggage of history and all the mistakes and successes that came before. To get some perspective on this process, CAA Arts Access held a discussion with Tyne Raffaelli about her work as the associate director for the newest revival of Fiddler on the Roof. With five previous Broadway productions, three on the West End, an Oscar-winning film adaptation, as well as countless regional, college, and high school productions each year, Raffaelli and her director were faced with the challenge of finding new ways to imagine this historic show. I don't know if any two productions can be identical. Really. Uh, I've worked with Bartshire, the director, for many years now and worked on many revivals with him. And the first question that we ask ourselves when we're approaching a revival is, why now? And so by the very nature of that question, the production is going to be different because we're responding to questions that we are asking ourselves in the 21st century and trying to use these classics to better understand the way we live now. Uh, in many ways, it honors the tradition and honors where the piece came from and deeply honors the source material 
but refreshes it, as I say, in dialogue with questions we're asking ourselves today. And Andre Bishop, the artistic director of Lincoln Center, says something that I find very beautiful, which is these classics come back to us when we need them most. And we happen to be building this production right at the time of the refugee crisis in Europe, in the Mediterranean, in Syria. And so obviously the questions that this piece poses were incredibly relevant. And uh, the conversation in the room was uh, very political and very in response to things that we were reading every day in the newspaper. So in that sense, the spirit of this production is in relationship to questions we're asking ourselves in 2016. As an associate director, Raffaele's role is to assist the director with implementing his or her vision for a show, even when the director is absent. Her director in this case is the Tony-winning director, Bartlett Shear. Raffaele and the show's lead producer, Jeffrey Richards, were able to offer a glimpse into Shear's artistic process and his reasons for producing this show now. Bart does a very rigorous process of examining the history, the context, past productions before starting to understand how to make it relevant to today, how to make this production different. It's not blindly being experimental, it's really specific and born from extensive research. When I approached Bart about doing this production, it was in 2013, and he immediately responded to it because his father uh, was in a step in Russia, and it gave, it, he felt an immediate desire to do this because he wanted to connect with his background because he had been not raised in a very religious household here because it was a mixed marriage. He didn't, he didn't know he was Jewish until his early 20s, so he has this huge appetite to understand his Jewish heritage because he didn't grow up in it the way many of us did. Historically, movement has been one of the primary and most effective means of conveying this Jewish heritage and culture in Fiddler. The show's original choreographer was Jerome Robbins, probably best known for his direction and choreography of West Side Story. With revivals, a choice is often made to either reimagine the staging, but keep the original choreography, or to reimagine the staging and the choreography. In the case of this new Fiddler production, the creative team chose the latter. And to oversee this choreographic update, Shear looked to Hofesh Schechter. He's an Israeli choreographer who now lives in London, and I've actually been following his work when he was like an avant-garde contemporary dance choreographer on the London scene many, many years ago, almost a decade ago. And uh, Bart was looking for a choreographer for a production he was doing at the Met, and I connected the two of them, and they worked together on this production at the Met. And then when Jeffrey and Bart were talking about the revival, Bart brilliantly thought about Hotfesh because his background is with a Israeli dance company called Batsheba. Batsheba's whole basis of their work is traditional Eastern European Jewish folk dance. So this is his background mixed with this very edgy, very contemporary uh, new Hofesh movement that he conceived of and which is bringing him great success all over the world. And so he brings a very muscular, athletic, again, honoring the tradition, but bringing it into a new place which makes you experience it in a different way. Very alive, very athletic, very muscular, very, I mean, it has... Interestingly, a beautiful mix of like Israeli and Eastern European spirit inside of it. When discussing Fiddler on the Roof, one question tends to creep into audience members' minds frequently. Who is the Fiddler? 
Throughout the show, the musical's protagonist, Tevya, encounters an unnamed man playing a fiddle. The man never speaks. Instead, his interaction with Tevya involves underscoring many of Tevya's introspective moments. The symbolism and meaning of the fiddler was something that Raffaele and Shear discussed at length. It's a, it's a metaphor, and Bart and I were in conversation almost every preview about what is the, we were trying to better articulate the role of the fiddler in the show, and it really is up for interpretation, so there's no definitive answer. I think we, something we were very connected to was the idea of the fiddler being the wind of change, the idea of a traditional way of life changing, and being a symbol of that, being a symbol of, as I say, the winds of change, the fact that this traditional community was being changed and transformed. And so it became a symbol of that. It's all about the precariousness of that way of life and meeting a community at the moment of huge transformation, violent transformation. And will these traditions continue? Will they die? What will happen to them? One of the primary artistic appeals of reviving a show seems to be the opportunity to dig deeper into a particular piece of writing and see what new meanings and interpretations can be extracted. For Raffaele, the most intriguing revelation came from her exploration into Shalom Aleichem, the 19th century author of the Yiddish story upon which Fiddler is based. You know, the thing I think I found most interesting was that it's very tricky to see this moment in Jewish history without the lens of the Holocaust. You know, so this is pre-Holocaust. And so that was the largest uh, perception shift, I feel, that we had to make. Um, and, you know, Shalom Aleichem was writing pre, and Fiddler on, the team behind Fiddler on the Roof were writing post. And so I feel like that, probably for me, was the most transformative perception shift mm -hmm. in trying to understand what this narrative was. Tradition. Without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as... as as a fiddler on the roof. This podcast was produced by Columbia College Women, CAA Arts Access, and the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities, and with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.